I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing China's role in the global effort to combat climate change. China has been the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases since 2004, in part due to its massive population and reliance on coal. In recent years, Beijing has joined the international community to fight global warming and reduce carbon emissions through initiatives like the Copenhagen Accord and the Paris Agreement. While China has met reduction targets so far and pledged to continue doing its part, increased emissions numbers and the relaxing of once strict standards in recent years have, have left some questioning uh, its commitment going forward. Barbara Finnemore's new book, Will China Save the Planet?, examines China's role as a global leader in the clean energy movement. To discuss her book and China's climate change policies, I am joined today by Barbara Finnemore. Barbara is a senior strategic director for Asia and the founder of the China Program at the National Resources Defense Council, focusing on climate, clean energy, and urban solutions in China. She also leads the NRDC's Green Ports Project in China, which aims to reduce air pollution caused by shipping and port-related activity. Thanks for joining us today, Barbara. Thanks for having me. In your new book, Will China Save the Planet?, you discuss the efforts and initiatives that China's taken to combat global warming. So can you briefly discuss China's historical relationship with in its involvement with the issue of climate change and global warming? When did Beijing decide to prioritize this issue and why? China has been concerned about climate change from the very beginning, from when it first became an issue for the global community. Uh, I was there, actually, when China first stepped on the international stage on climate change negotiations in the early 90s, when it invited ministers from 40 developing countries to come to Beijing to develop a joint strategy for negotiating a global climate change agreement at that time, its main priority was ensuring that developed countries took the main role in addressing climate change because they were the main source of the problem. So these negotiating principles of China led it to resist the Copenhagen Agreement because they felt it was hindering their ability to continue with their unfettered economic development. But starting in um, Around 2013, I would say, was the tipping point when it became clear that China was choking on its own high-speed and unbalanced development, when the air pollution got so bad uh, that China recognized that it had to take action because coal is the main source of China's air pollution, but it's also the main source of China's CO2 emissions. So that year, 2013, was a real tipping point. That was the year that China announced a massive air pollution control and action plan that was targeted at coal consumption in its most polluted regions. That was also the year that China became the world's largest investor in renewable energy. It also happened to be the year that China ramped up its program, massive program, to become the world leader in electric vehicles 
And it was the year that China began seven pilot programs to um, build up a national market on carbon trading. So you referred to China's position that basically there should be differing climate change responsibilities based on whether a nation is developed or uh, developing. And, And they had this position for a long time that developing nations have the right to develop. Um, and they should not have uh, the obligations uh, that sh- that they should share the obligations, but should not undertake the obligations to the extent that already developed countries uh, should take. So, if you uh, look at China's position today, is this still China's position? Does China uh, continue to see itself as a developing nation? Or has its perspective changed on this issue? China continues to adhere to the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities for developed and developing countries based on their respective capabilities. But in the recent climate change negotiations last year, China agreed to a common framework for all countries in developing greater transparency of their climate change actions. Previously, there have been separate guidelines for monitoring, reporting, and verifying emissions for developed and developing countries. The current framework, which we call the Paris Rule Book, has one set of guidelines for all nations, but it provides flexibility for the most vulnerable countries that need it. And similarly, the Paris Rule Book requires developed countries to provide information every two years on what types of climate finance they are going to provide to countries that need it. But it, it requires, it, it, it encourages other countries that can provide climate finance to do so and to report on a regular basis. So it's a bit of a different system now. China continues to adhere to the principles, but the way in which countries agreed to implement the Paris Agreement is a little bit different to reflect uh, the new realities of uh, climate change in different countries. In your book, you define China's development priorities as protecting sovereignty and national interest and and enhancing its international image. Uh, So how do you see these two priorities reflected in China's current climate change policies? China continues to focus on protecting its own national interest. Um, What's changed is how it defines its national interest. And right now, it's very clear that China considers energy security a very important uh, consideration, and that's why it's promoting renewable energy and working to limit its reliance on foreign oil, for example, through the development of electric vehicles. It's now the largest market for electric vehicles in the world. China also understands that its development, economic development model, which focused for decades on export-led heavy industry powered by coal is not sustainable and has led to the current situation of, of, of rising environmental degradation and also economic instability. So 
China also recognizes that climate change can be a source of instability. It signed an agreement with the EU last year that recognizes that climate change can lead to both domestic and international instability. So these are the issues that China understands are in its national interest to address. And in terms of enhancing its international image, the Belt and Road Initiative that China launched also in 2013 has um, led to some criticism of how it's being carried out. And China is responding to that uh, because it wants to continue. It, it has a lot of opportunities to use the Belt and Road Initiative to enhance its international image, particularly in using it to provide funding for renewable energy development in its recipient countries. So those principles are still very much in the front of China's mind, but how it implements them has evolved over time. Well, since you mentioned the uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, why don't we drill down into that a little bit? Can, can you talk about what we've really seen so far in China in terms of the projects that it's implementing with other countries as they relate to uh, climate change-related issues? Uh, are we seeing them implement efficient, clean energy projects, or do you think that these BRI projects are actually contributing to global warming? President Xi Jinping has said that the, green, the Belt and Road Initiative should be a green program, and there have been a lot of guidelines and regulations put into place to green the Belt and Road financing of projects in uh, over 70 countries around the world. But to date, most of the funding has gone to uh, fossil fuel investments, um, unsustainable investments. China, Japan, and Korea are the largest investors in fossil fuel projects overseas. And China in itself is funding about a quarter of the coal plants that are uh, being built around the world. So this is not sustainable. Um, the good news is that China understands this and is moving to change it. It's developed an international coalition for green development in the Belt and Road. It's also developed an international cooperation model that brings together all of its engineering, procurement, and um, construction facilities to work together on renewable energy projects overseas. There is an enormous uh, potential for profit and programs in Belt and Road countries on renewable energies. And we're starting to see uh, an uptick in those programs, renewable energy projects overseas. Uh, some of them are very massive. And the potential is enormous. One study shows that in 31 Belt and Road countries that have Paris Agreement pledges for renewable energy, the total opportunity for financing is over $400 billion. So there was a Belt and Road forum, the second annual forum that just took place in late April in China. And that's where we're starting to see China recognizing that it needs to move towards perhaps more uh, stringent energy 
emissions and efficiency standards for the energy programs that it finances overseas. And also, there's an opportunity for China to prioritize funding for renewable energy by its development banks. Urban-rural divide in China manifests itself in, in, of course, all sorts of ways. Are the green initiatives and climate change actions focused on primarily on the cities, or are these rural populations um, and areas also factored into Beijing's strategy? China recognizes that its rural populations are probably the most uh, vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, whether it be impacts on agriculture, um, loss of uh, water resources. China is already one of the countries that is the most water-stressed in the world. Uh, Vulnerability to extreme weather events, flooding, droughts, etc. So China's focus on climate change for rural populations has largely been focused on adaptation, on helping them become more resilient, more able to cope with the impacts of climate change, Uh, whether it be agricultural programs that prioritize uh, water conservation or high-efficiency irrigation, protecting of grasslands, forests, um, flood control programs, and so forth. Um, That said, many of China's energy-related climate change programs are national. For example, the national uh, cap, the mandatory cap on coal consumption um, that my organization, NRDC, has been working on for several years in, a, you know, in collaboration with uh, 20 different Chinese organizations and stakeholders. This program sets a national mandatory cap on coal consumption in the 13th five-year plan, but now it's being allocated to every province and specific, um, you know, depending on their economic situation and other contexts. Um, so that is designed to prevent leakage of of carbon emissions, of air pollution from the most polluted coastal region of China to the western part of China that is less subject to air pollution controls. Uh, similarly, China has just issued a draft, what they call a Renewable Energy Portfolio Standard, which is very exciting. It actually is going to set a quota for each province on how much renewable energy it needs to um, achieve. And if they can't generate that renewable energy themselves, they need to, to purchase renewable energy power certificates from other provinces. And again, most of China's renewable energy is in the western uh, part of the country, the wind and solar, far away from the demand centers. But this, I think, program has a lot of potential to ensure that more of China's renewable energy actually makes it onto the grid. I want to talk a little bit about China's performance in the global effort to reduce uh, global warming and address uh, climate change. 
Initially, it appeared that China was performing fairly well. Uh, in March of 2018, China announced it had met its emission reduction targets uh, from the Copenhagen Accord um, early, uh, apparently um, uh, two years early. But by the end of that year, uh, there were signs that China's em carbon emissions were growing, uh, almost 5% uh, apparently that year. And that contributed, of course, to a record high uh, in China's global emissions uh, that year. Is this an indicator of backsliding? And how do you explain this? You know, is China still on track to continue meeting its international commitments? Or should the international community be concerned? Is there a need to put greater pressure on China? China's coal consumption began to grow after three years of decline, began to grow in 2017 and grew another 1% in uh, 2018. And that did lead to an uptick in China's CO2 emissions and therefore global CO2 emissions. So the real question on everyone's mind, is this uh, a bump in the road of China's transition of the world's second largest economy away from coal to low carbon? Or is this a sign of a growing trend? And I think the latter, because most of that growth in coal consumption was a result of an economic stimulus uh, focused on infrastructure, focused on real estate, an effort to get the economy growing again. That's led to increased production of iron, steel, and cement, and powered by coal. But we don't think that this economic stimulus is going to continue. And in fact, the government has said it won't because that leads to its own problems in terms of increasing debt. And also this stimulus that had worked so, so well in the past is really not resulting in the same kind of uh, impacts that it has in the past because China's infrastructure development has you know, pretty much been built up and there's not that need. There's not that need for the new infrastructure that there was in the past. So the other thing is that China's coal plants, there's been a lot of new coal plants uh, being constructed. However, they're not needed. The International Energy Agency says they're not needed um, because most of China's coal plants are, are running at a loss, 42%. Um, that could grow to... 95% by 2030, it's because renewable energy is becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And there's so many coal plants being built that they're running only half the time. So what we face, I think what China faces, is a situation where these new coal plants are not going to be able to provide a return on their investment, and it's going to result in you know, could be billions of dollars in stranded assets as solar and wind plus energy storage continue to drop in price. They've dropped about 80% in the last decade. And we're at a situation now where solar and wind power are cheaper um, than new coal plants in many parts of the world and increasingly in China. And we're getting to a point where new solar and wind plants will soon be cheaper than buying the coal to run the existing coal plants. So I think the 
economic inevitability that of, of coal's demise is something that China itself helped to put in place through its massive investments in solar and wind. And here's one um, real indication of that. One of China's pledges in the Paris Agreement was to increase the percentage of non-fossil energy in its energy mix to 20% by 2030. That includes um, all types of non-fossil energy, including large hydro, including nuclear. But this new draft uh, renewable energy portfolio standard that China is uh, that is out for comment in China will require provinces to increase the percentage of renewable energy alone, solar energy alone, to 35 percent by 2030. Uh, this is remarkable. This is remarkable. So we um, think there's a potential here later this year for China to increase its ambition with new Paris targets, which every country has promised to um, propose by the end of this year, by recognizing the increasing, increasing penetration of renewable energy um, in its energy mix and um, so I think what we're going to see is that China will meet its targets under the Paris Agreement and hopefully increase the ambition of those targets going forward. In the cities and provinces, the emissions uh, goals that are set and in, in the standards uh, at the national level, um, in some of these cities and provinces, there has been a reduction in in the emissions uh, targets. So uh, apparently in the Beijing, uh, Tianjin, uh, Hebei area, the emissions reductions targets were revised from 5% in 2017 to 3% in 2018. So how do you account for that? What is causing China to revise these um, emissions reductions targets? I believe you're talking about the air pollution reduction targets. And what I see is a situation where China takes these air pollution targets very seriously, and therefore local governments have in the past moved forward very aggressively to require factories to shut down as the target date nears in order to to, to meet the targets. And to my mind, what what's happened is sometimes local governments have required uh, factories to shut down, even though they have themselves met the air pollution control targets, even though a region has met air pollution control targets. And and to me, this is not the correct way to move forward, shutting down factories, because my organization has been working in China for decades to promote energy efficiency in large, small, and medium factories in China. There is a huge potential to retrofit these factories in a very cost-effective way so that they can reduce their energy use, even water use, um, and reduce their emissions in a way that doesn't affect their bottom line negatively. In fact, that can improve their competitiveness in the global market and can improve their cost-effectiveness. It's called energy productivity. And China was a leader in that for many years. The International Energy Agency says that China is a global energy efficiency heavyweight. 
But in recent years, that focus on energy efficiency, particularly to meet the air emission control regulations, has um, has been less emphasized than it should be. So in my mind, the best way forward is for China to double down on its efforts to help um, help these enterprises switch to more efficient production. And sometimes it's just using more effective management methods that are low cost or no cost. Um, so to my mind, that is the, um, the greatest opportunity because China, even though it has done so much on energy efficiency, still uses far more energy to produce one unit of GDP than the world average. So that's, um, I think, the most important thing going forward. In the private sector, some observers maintained that China's regulatory environment um, and some limitations on market access have negatively impacted um, collaboration and investments in green technology. Do you think that this is a fair statement? And, and if so, is this something that China recognizes and is it taking some steps to address the problem or how should it uh, respond to these concerns that exist in companies around the world that are trying to work in China? China has probably done more than any other country to ramp up green technology, whether it be wind, solar, or electric vehicles. It now has one out of every three wind turbines in the world. It has similarly at least a quarter of the solar um, capacity in the world, and now it is the largest uh, uh, market for electric vehicles, selling over over half of the world total last year. Um, but some of the um, ways that China has moved ahead with these technologies have been to re- restrict market access to their market um, to to foreign firms and. Some of that, I have to say, is um, is good because last September, China instituted a new regulation saying that if foreign auto manufacturers wish to sell any kind of vehicle in China, they have to meet a certain percentage of electric vehicles sales. And if they can't produce them themselves, they have to buy credits from, from other automakers. And this has spurred an incredible uh, amount of investment in electric vehicles estimated to total $300 billion in the next five years. So basically, this is a single measure that has done more than any other to jumpstart the global electric vehicle market. But China has also, um, I think, begun to realize that its its um, provisions to restrict market access are doing um, not doing it any good and are causing concerns in the in the in the world community and so they're starting to take measures to open up the market access to foreign firms for example on electric vehicles um, in the past any foreign automaker that wanted to uh, produce electric vehicles in China basically had to form a joint venture with a Chinese uh, company and China has removed those restrictions now any foreign automaker can move ahead on its own and build its own factories in China. And so in the Belt and Road Forum in late April, 
Xi Jinping also recognized the need to expand market access for foreign investment in more areas. So his pledge to open that up, uh, plan new pilot free trade zones, explore the opening of a free trade port, and so forth. So this has also been an issue in the uh, trade talks between the U.S. and China. And I think we shall see how that goes, but I think we'll also see some more opening up of that market access because the bottom line, from my perspective, is that it is in every country's interest to expand the global market for these clean energy technologies, and no one country can do it alone. So finally, do you expect China to become a global leader on the climate change issue? And um, what are the what are the hurdles it needs to overcome to become such a leader? China and the U.S. are the two largest emitters of greenhouse gas. And what when we saw the greatest progress in fighting climate change was when the two countries worked together in a series of bilateral agreements under the Obama administration that really built the momentum for the Paris Agreement and accelerated the pace at which it entered into force by all countries. That's the kind of collaboration that is really necessary, I think, for China to move ahead, not on its own, but in collaboration with the United States. And I know that the U.S. House of Representatives is about to introduce a bill that would prevent the Trump administration from withdrawing from the Paris Agreement when that option first becomes available in late 2020. I think that's the best way for China to move ahead. But domestically, China also faces um, a, a whole new stage in in moving ahead with clean energy. It's built the infrastructure. It's built the electric vehicles, the charging infrastructure. What's the next step is perhaps more difficult for China to really um, complete its deep reforms of its power sector, which to date still continue to prioritize coal. Uh, And there are pilot projects for power sector reform going on around the country that want to move uh, investments and power generation to a more competitive market-based system. This is not easy to do for China. Similarly, China has just uh, issued draft rules for the operation of its national carbon trading market, which is focused on the power sector, which if once it's fully implemented, would make China's carbon trading market the largest in the world. But again, because China is still not a fully market-based system and may never be, it's complicated for China to really develop a national carbon trading market. So these are the types of issues that China is grappling with now. Uh, and that organizations such as mine are working to help them with. And that's going to really make a difference going forward. Well, this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been talking to Barbara Finnamore, who is author of a recent book called Will China Save the Planet? and Senior Strategic Director for Asia and founder of the China program at the National Resources Defense Council. Thanks again, Barbara. 